Hi, Nancy. Hi, Shane. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, so today, I wanted to ask you, has there ever been a situation where you've been cut off, cut off from contact with folks, cut off from civilization, something like that? Well, I had this scary situation actually happen to me. Mm. Um, yeah, I was home alone in my mom's house. This was like, I was like, I think it was after graduate school. I was like living at her house for a little while. Okay. And she was away for the weekend. And I went into the bathroom. Did I tell you this story already? I don't know. No. I went into the bathroom and on the first floor, which is like a powder room, no windows. Okay. Okay. With no phone, no nothing. So there was a phone in their bathroom. No, no, like I didn't bring my cell phone in. Okay. Phone in. So there's no, it's just like a, it's just like a toilet and, and the sink. Sure. Close the door. Okay. I don't know why I did that because I was home alone. Like, you know, whatever. Anyway, How close about- the door. And I was locked in the bathroom. No. How? So scary. How does that happen? Because my mom neglected to tell me that the lock was broken. Oh. So I was like banging my body <laughs> against the door trying to get out. Um, hours. Luckily, they were coming home that Hour? day. They came home that day and they actually had to take the door off the hinges to get me out. So what? Like, 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 like three been, hours? What are we talking here? Hours. A few oh, hours. That's I was banging my body at the door trying to get it get it open. But then I was like, well, I have water. Yeah, and you have you have a toilet. <laughs> and I have a right? toilet. Like that's I mean, if You're you like, have I to get stuck anywhere. Die, I guess. Right. Oh but, my gosh. Oh my God. That I don't is... know if that counts as this isolation story, but I was cut off. You were definitely cut off. <laughs> <laughs> it was scary. Now I like I don't, I don't like fully shut the doors on bathrooms anymore. Oh my gosh. That's I'm such, traumatized. that's such an interesting tidbit. I'll make sure, oh, I'll have to remember that um, after we can actually see each other in person and hang on in person again, next time you come over to my house, just like to have a wide berth for the bathroom because we're going to click a little sliver of light. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hamlin. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Okay, Nancy. So uh, as usual, I didn't just ask you something to learn more about you, which I do enjoy. But there is some tie-in to our episode today, right? Yes. This story is all about isolation. Mm. Um, So we're going to bring in our producer, Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nancy. Um, Yeah, so tell us a little bit about who we're going to hear from today. Yeah, so NASA does these things called Mars Analog Missions, uh, where they're really trying to simulate these long-haul missions. So what they're trying to understand with these things is really the sort of psychological impact of isolation and of really feeling cut off from Earth. Uh, So what they do is they put groups of people for an extended period of time, for months at a time, in this geodesic dome uh, on the side of a volcano on the island of Hawaii. And they kind of monitor uh, how these people respond to being in this sort of really isolated environment. And so I was actually able to speak to a crew member on one of these missions. 
My name is Kate Green. I'm the author of Once Upon a Time, I Lived on Mars. In 2013, I was a crew writer and second-in-command for NASA's High Seas Mission, a simulated Mars mission designed to study the psychological, sociological effects of isolation as it might be on a Mars mission. mission is a simulation of the space mission. And, you know, these these have been around for a while when uh, astronauts do spacewalks on the space station, you know, for repairs or whatever. Those are actually simulated before the astronaut even gets to space in a giant pool of water and in Houston. The great big pool that we use to train uh, the astronauts on how to do spacewalks. Uh, we'll actually put them inside spacesuits and put them down in the water and uh, the benefit of the water is it gives them the ability to be neutrally buoyant and allow them to kind of practice what it's like actually being in space and without in the microgravity environment. And so in a way that is an analog mission. You're simulating a, a component of the, the space mission that you're going on and it's underwater because that simulates low gravity. So uh, when scientists and engineers think about sending people on longer missions uh, further away from Earth, like to the moon or Mars, they, they start to ask more questions about what that's actually going to be like. And so within the past decade or so, although it stretches back much longer, but it's really picked up in the past decade, uh, this idea of long duration uh, simulated missions has become more popular, more interesting, and maybe more pressing because more people are talking about going to Mars. High seas and other long duration missions are looking at how groups of people work together to complete their mission far away from Earth um, in an isolated environment. And so Kim Binstead, the founder of High Seas, has said that if the human component, uh, the psychological component of a space mission fails, it could be as disastrous as if a rocket explodes. So essentially, how do the crew work together and how do they maintain a high level of performance as they're doing these exploration tasks? Because if the crew start to not get along, that performance is gonna go down. So we need to understand uh, how they continue to work together and how they can improve their end performance. So we need to really understand what goes into that. And, and so, of course, it becomes critical, who do you pick um, and what kind of personalities do those people have? They were looking for people with thick skin, a long fuse and an optimistic outlook. And, you know, if you put those kinds of people together, Generally, you're going to get a pretty boring group of people, but that's actually what you want on a long space mission. You do not want drama. You don't want something like Big Brother game show. You don't want the real world. You don't want any of that because there's so many things that could possibly go wrong and you want to try to minimize that. So, I mean, as much as a lot of people think that this would be an exciting adventure, uh, you're probably best suited to get people who are really even keeled and aren't looking for a lot of drama. Of course, the, fir the first NASA astronauts were test pilots. And the personality of a test pilot is someone who is absolutely willing to strap into uh, a rocket, strap, on, strap themselves onto a missile, essentially, and, and drive it. And so that kind of personality, that's um, somewhat adventure-seeking. Uh, there's a lot of ego involved in that. But I, I do truly believe that a long mission to Mars, it's like, what, two and a half years, you know, in some scenarios that it's projected it could be that long, um, requires a very different kind of personality.
someone who can deal well with boredom and monotony, someone, like I said, who isn't into drama, someone who doesn't need excitement and adventure, although it seems kind of antithetical to be some of the first people to step foot on an alien planet and not be adventure seeking. So what kind of person is that? Honestly, I don't really know. All right. So before we go further, I need to back up for a sec. How how did Kate get here? Like, how does this opportunity just arise for someone? Yeah, so it's an interesting story, actually. She was just reading an NPR article that caught her eye about why astronauts love Tabasco sauce. Uh, And she was obviously interested in this and read to the very end of the article. And at the end, uh, there was actually a call for applications uh, for the very first high seas mission. And Kate decided, well, you know, she had this childhood dream of being an astronaut. She knew that she would never be a real astronaut, but she could at least kind of live out her dream by applying for this thing. And she totally did not think that she was going to get it. And then, of course, she found herself packing for Mars. That is crazy. So what does one pack when they go into the Mars uh, analog, whatever you want to call it, on the side of the mountain? (laughs) Yeah, the packing for Mars question. What did we pack? I like this question a lot because uh, what we packed is not at all what real astronauts would pack on Mars mission. Um, Some of us brought pretty heavy boxes of things. Um, One of my crewmates had a room full of objects. I mean, just like comfort objects, like, um, you know, like a lap desk or like a big puffy comforter and lots of trinkets and pictures. And like that just, that wouldn't fly literally uh, on a space mission. I also brought um, a cardboard box full of actual physical books, thinking that like, if I'm in this environment, I want to have something tactile that I can like hold, that I can feel its weight that sort of thing. Cause you know, we didn't simulate low gravity. That's not like, that's not the thing The um, and besides when you're on Mars, you have a third of earth's gravity anyway. So you're going to be, you're going to be dealing with some gravity. You're going to be getting used to like some sort of downward tug. So um, we, we brought our individual items and we all had our rooms, which are about the size of large closets. So, you know, rearrange those rooms however you want. But then most of the space was communal space. And a lot of the um, objects in, in that those spaces were shared objects. I mean, there was a laboratory and I didn't work in the lab. We had a chief scientist. And so that was basically her space. You know, we all had like uh, work tables that we could sit at. The, the question of shared communal versus individual really became interesting though, as the mission wore on and mostly in terms of food. Actually, this whole mission was inspired uh, by the question of food. The thing that actually launched this first high seas mission was the question of menu fatigue, and it relates to the Tabasco sauce question uh, that I was reading about in the NPR article uh, many years ago when I first learned about high seas and the possibility to be an analog astronaut. Um, The problem with menu fatigue is, you know, this is a documented issue with astronauts on the space station uh, who are up there for like six months. And over the course of the six months, NASA knows that they tend to take in fewer calories. Well, that's not great because that means that um, they're more at risk for injury and illness. And so if you think about that, 
you know, that's just six months. But if you have a mission that, you know, takes you eight months to get to Mars and then you're on Mars with gravity again, I mean, a broken bone or if somebody gets like seriously ill because they're just not eating enough, um, then that is something that NASA really doesn't want to happen. It kind of wants to understand better, like the question of, of astronaut appetite. So some of the issues that might be causing it are the fact that in low gravity, your fluids shift. And so um, that means that maybe you have a clogged up nose, your sense of smell isn't as good. And so you just become less interested in food. And that's why Tabasco sauce or spicy things might be um, good and interesting because it's some sort of like culinary pow. You know, you're not getting it from like the flavor itself. You're getting it from like the spice. Eating in space is like eating with a head cold. You just can't taste very much. So because of this, uh, a lot of our food tastes kind of bland. That's why we like especially spicy food here. Stuff that you might not normally eat on Earth, like shrimp cocktail with horseradish sauce. It's probably my all-time favorite because it has a real bite and actually decongests your sinuses a little bit. And so maybe that's why astronauts like Tabasco sauce. Uh, could also be just generalized boredom, sort of this low-level boredom that they don't really know about. And by the way, astronauts are loath to admit that they're bored. Boredom is a big question for astronauts on long missions because the problems with being bored um, are that you're less attuned to your environment. So you might not notice something that's actually dangerous, or you might not realize how dangerous something is if, if, if something's going wrong. Um, something else that boredom can cause is like a, a sort of sensation-seeking behavior, which could lead to negative effects of maybe starting a fight, you know, just like looking for drama, just something, some sensation that you haven't been getting because you're bored. But really the biggest problem with astronaut boredom is the fact that astronauts don't admit that they're bored. Um, and they may very well not be bored because it's a very important job. They take it seriously. They're very good at what they do. That said, the environment that they're in is extremely static. And, and even if you're busy, you can still feel boredom when an environment doesn't change very much. Um, so you have a changing routine, sure, but like there's still a sameness that kind of that can kind of creep in. Astronauts don't talk about boredom because if they were to talk about boredom, then they would surely not be invited back to uh, a mission afterwards. So one of the things that was interesting about our mission is that we talked about that a little bit more. But I have to say, even halfway through the mission, we agreed we weren't bored. And I think it, we had assumed something of the astronaut attitude of, of course, we're not bored. You know, we're, this is all very interesting. And we're doing this for NASA. And, you know, this is this is great and wonderful. But for me, and, and I've always been a person who says that I'm not bored. You know, I could sit in the most boring lecture that other people are so bored by and find anything interesting about it. Or, you know, do nothing for days on end and say, no, I, I was thinking very interesting thoughts. Of course, I'm not bored. But... I did realize on high seas that I do have some sort of boredom threshold. That's so interesting that like, you know, she, she felt like, I mean, it really, I guess drove her to boredom, you know, on some level. <laughs> yeah. And, and I imagine like there's all this interesting stuff going on inside the dome and everything's probably um, like exciting. Uh, but I imagine there has to be stuff on the outside too, that she was missing. Well, I definitely missed people. I missed, I missed behaviors and I'm finding this to be the case in quarantine. Like I missed being able to get on my bike and 
right down the street and meet a friend at a beer garden. I miss drinking beer with friends. The thing that surprised me the most <laughs> that I didn't realize I would miss as much is uh, swimming. Or just being submerged in water in some way or another. You know, we had minimal showers, eight, eight minutes of shower time a week that we all just kind of learned that we didn't really even need. So we all took four minutes of shower time a week because, you know, limited water resources, you, you don't want to use too much, right? Because we're off grid. And I realized that I missed it. I missed swimming so much when I got an email from some like a uh, swim instruction newsletter that I had signed up for years ago. And, uh, and it showed a picture of someone swimming, click on the link and you can watch this video. So like I was able to download this video at that time and watch this video of someone swimming and watching someone swim is like almost the most boring thing that you can do. But I watched the whole thing and was riveted and just felt the feeling of swimming in water and I missed it so much. So that was the thing that surprised me the most was how I could be riveted by a swimming video and really truly miss swimming because at the time I was swimming quite a lot and you know I, I kind of quit cold turkey but you know the days after the mission ended I definitely threw myself into the ocean and swam for as far as I could go and then <laughs> turned around and came back. So I was really happy that um, when the mission was over, you know, I had Earth to come back to, not dry, rocky Mars. Yeah, what were some of the other things you did when you got out? Like, what were some of your priorities, like, as, as soon as you were, like, out of the dome, off the volcano, and kind of rejoining society? Rejoining society looked a lot like uh, drinking a beer and going to a party that celebrated the mission, which was really fun. Um, eating good, fresh food, and in particular, vegetables and fruits that crunched in your mouth because the only vegetables and fruits that we had were like um, dried fruits or rehydrated vegetables. And those are, you know, just necessarily mushy. So we were always eating mushy vegetables. And, um, you know, it was an interesting thing that I, I'm remembering now is we would make these sandwich wraps that contain vegetables of some kind, you know, and, um, you know, mayonnaise or whatever sauces or, or whatever you put on, condiments that you put on. But it was really important to us to put like cashews or other nuts in these wraps so that we had just like a different texture. So for me, I wanted more texture. I wanted more sense experience in my food. And that's what you get when you crunch a carrot in your mouth or you eat a chunk of pineapple that has like such a diversity of sensations in it. You know, the, the fiber, the way the fibers pull apart and like the very particular sweetness of fresh pineapple wow yeah so all of that was really great that was like in the first few days um i was nervous about the sun because i'm a fairly pale person and hawaii's sun can be pretty strong so i wore sunscreen but you know i i really i got i got kind of pale over the four months and <laughs> i think it didn't look that great like there's some there's like a pallor that wasn't that that good for me um and i saw my crewmates like gloriously tanning and so I just was like you know what I'm just gonna bite the bullet and I stood outside for 15 minutes and then got sunburned and then that was over with but um yeah missing the sun even though it's like a little bit dangerous for me um I definitely missed that and 
uh, was excited to experience that, that and ocean swimming and seeing people and having weird social interactions. When people start going back to uh, a more, I wouldn't say normal, but like whatever sort of social life that they experienced before um, the pandemic era, I think that it's kind of underappreciated that it's going to be weird and people are going to be strange with each other and with them, strange with themselves. <laughs> the thing I'm thinking this entire time hearing this story is how it compares to our current situation. It's, it's isolation, isolation. And so I am just stuck wondering, did her experience in the dome prepare her maybe uniquely uh, for our current situation where many of us are alone and isolated in a different way? I mean, it's it's hard to do a direct comparison, but there were some similarities and just that your world shrinks to um, a space, a smaller space and an environment where there isn't a lot else going on. You're not in, you're not your day-to-day starts to look the same over time. And so I knew that was going to happen again for me. And I thought about what I wanted to do. I started with food, to be honest. I started late in February going on grocery runs. I live in New York City. And so I don't, I couldn't go for like one big grocery run, but I started doing smaller grocery runs and getting shelf-stable ingredients that I knew could um, last me through because we didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know how supply chains would withstand the shock. So I was making sure that I could have enough food and water that could like get me through, right? And I even got some of the same foods that um, I really appreciated uh, while on Mars, you know, I got some spam for spam the soupy and, you know, I got some other things that made, um, I got some powdered eggs just in case. So I could make these omelets that I discovered I really loved on Mars. And, and I found that to be a great comfort, honestly. So I had, I had some like comfort foods from that experience that I could choose from because honestly, the high seas mission was, I I have great memories from it. And so I, I kind of like fell back into that. I also, I did things that I, you know, weren't there for me on the mission, but I anticipated I would appreciate. And I mean, everyone talks about what their panic purchases were, but I panic purchased house plants. I didn't have a lot of house plants <laughs> before, but like something about seeing these green plants and knowing that I was going to be stuck in a room with them. I live in a studio apartment that I thought I, I need to have, I need to have something, you know, something to nurture and care for and watch grow. And I was really glad that I had that. There were so many people who were living with families and like, that's such a, that's such an experience and so different in so many ways. You know, there are people who had to change their living situations throughout the pandemic. So, you know, speaking from my experience, I also realized that um, being with five other people relieved a huge burden. Like there's something really, really hard about being by yourself. Um, So like figuring out how to do like as the pandemic wore on, like more social things like in person and what was safe and all that was like actually super critical to me. But, you know, in the first uh, couple months, that was that was a big question. And I realized just being by yourself is a lot different than being isolated with five other people. And that I'm definitely a person who does quite well, better isolated with people than I am isolated by myself. So that was uh, that was something that I learned that it was a huge difference between the Mars experience and and this quarantine experience. That's so interesting that like her, her quarantine experience um, now is in some ways, I guess, more difficult than it was doing the high seas mission. 
Yeah, that was that was really interesting to sort of hear about from her very unique perspective. Yeah, I mean, there's only a few people who have that unique, you know, perspective on it. Um, and I wonder, like, given, you know, her experience, if she'd actually go on, like, if there was the opportunity to go on a real mission to Mars. I think that a mission to Mars would be extremely difficult, will be extremely difficult, and very exciting and really kind of uh, monumental for humanity. But I, I, uh, I don't know, I think that they're just, in the mission itself, there will still be so many unanswered questions. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I think this mission, uh, the simulated mission, kind of revealed to me that you can ask as many questions as you want and, and think yourself into the, the tightest design that you can, but you're not going to know everything. And um, you kind of have to make sure that there's something built into the mission that can withstand that unknowability enough so that there's a uh, hope that the, the whole thing succeeds. Would you do it again if you had the chance? Would I do a simulated Mars mission again? I don't think I need to do a simulated Mars mission again. <laughs> Would you go to Mars if you were given the chance? I think, um, well, I think it's highly unlikely that I would ever go to Mars, uh, that I would ever be chosen to go to Mars and participate in any sort of actual Mars mission. It would definitely depend on the context, the scenario. <laughs> I think uh, I would want to know a lot about what, what went into the mission, and I would want to uh, probably annoyingly be an active participant in the, the, a lot of the design of the mission. So um, with all that information <laughs> out in the world, I don't think that I would be one chosen to participate in a Mars mission. I wouldn't mind at all going to the moon. I think that that's nice. It's not so far. It would be extremely exciting. The moon is such a destination in so many people's hearts and minds. I just feel like uh, that would be that would be a trip. Okay, so uh, so we're not going to talk about going to Mars or going to the moon, but poll for the group. Uh, who among us? would volunteer to do something like high seas and be in the dome for X amount of time cut off from people. Um, I'm a no. <laughs> Just gonna... I'd do it. I'd yeah. totally do it. What's, what's your what's your time limit? What, what should you do? Four months, Rachel? Yep, yeah. four months. You do, do four that? months? All right, yeah. all right. What about you, Rachel? Rachel? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you guys know me. I'm an outgoing person, but I'm like, yeah, I can. They can hunker down there. You, uh, you, you'd be like, you'd be one of the experimental variables in it. Yeah, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I could drive everyone crazy. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Rachel for bringing us this episode, and of course to Kate for sharing her work with us. This episode was produced by Rachel. And thanks to our sound engineer, Kayla Suri. Hey, check us out on your favorite podcasting app. Yes. Read and review us on Apple Podcasts. And you can always find us at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next time. Bye.